this is the beginning of a second season of the Empathetic Witness podcast. And you may have noticed that I am not Angelina, the normal interviewer and host. I am, in fact, her spouse, Alan Pratt. Um, I have done an interview with Angelina at the beginning of this podcast journey. And in this uh, commemorative mini-edition, we're going to talk about the first season of the podcast, the first year, and how it has gone, how it began, how it evolved, and what Angelina is thinking uh, the focus going forward for the podcast will be. So with that introduction, I'll welcome our interviewee, Angelina Pratt. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so your podcast, Empathetic Witness, began with a particular focus and a particular purpose. Why don't we begin there? Thank you. Yes, I, during the pandemic, I resigned as chair for Nietzsche Institute, which is an organization in Alberta that is addressing issues of addictions. And I decided to form a new organization, a charitable foundation, and I wanted to give it some exposure. And uh, I thought that inviting people to a conversation on addictions could do that. And that's how the podcast started. So uh, briefly, why don't you just tell us about the foundation and and uh, the, the different focus that the foundation has, as opposed to Nietzsche Institute, where you formerly were on the board, and I think ultimately the chair of the board for many years. Well, I don't really want to go into Nietzsche, and I, it's a great organization. It's in Alberta, and it's helped thousands of people um, become free of their addictions. But what I want to really focus on is is the podcast, and the podcast has evolved in the last year because I started talking about addictions and trauma based on Dr. Gabor Mate's um, philosophy that the root of addictions is trauma. And that, that is in contrast to, as I understand it, the uh, focus that Nietzsche has of, of using the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous approach to overcoming addictions. So that's quite a difference. Um, so the... So the uh, podcast began as really um, an adjunct to the new foundation, but over the course of your first year, and, and so far, as I understand it, you have 21 interviews. Um, tell me about how the evolution uh, has occurred in in the subjects, the guests, and, and the overall focus for the, for the podcast. Well, quite simply, as a new initiative, I relied on friends that I knew and their strengths. So I invited people I knew to speak about their strengths and their journey. And the more podcasts that I recorded in this method, I realized that I was moving away from addictions mm -hmm. and looking at at the resilience that Indigenous peoples have, not just nationally, but internationally. 
Yes, well, that's become a very prominent uh, word in our conversations, resilience. And of course, that that begins with an acknowledgement of the challenges that Indigenous peoples have faced historically and continue to face today, and how different ways of coping and overcoming those challenges. So why don't why don't you talk a little bit more about what you've uncovered in your first season of the podcast? Wow. I mean, with 21 recordings, I mean, it was all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the discovery was great for me. It was a learning experience. I had to learn how to interview and lead the guests in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. I had to learn to listen so that the people I was interviewing really felt heard. But the most important thing is I was learning so much. In the last year, I've learned so much. And it's really it's really exciting. It's an exciting mm-hmm. journey. Well, I know that the topic of addictions is um, can be... It can be very uh, difficult to deal with, and it and it can it can in, in, induce uh, discussions of of a negative nature. While at the same time, I know your focus has always been a positive one on how to overcome addictions. Uh, but you've now begun to interview people whose whose stories really don't necessarily intersect with the addictions narrative, um, but but rather other. Other ways in which indigenous peoples have uh, have dealt with their indigenous heritage, and um, and as you say, you've had a very diverse collection of people, of stories, and and actually people from all over, including Australia. So, what do you see going forward for the next series of interviews? I know you have some planned. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you have planned and where you think the focus might might go? Or will there be a focus? Will it just be a place where people tell their stories and and it doesn't necessarily have to be focused by you? That's a good question. I you know, as I'm looking forward, I'm looking at, you know, there's a series of guests that I have already booked and each has, there's no theme, really. There's no real theme, but each guest that I've booked has a particular focus. So, for example, I am going to be interviewing a Dene teacher that is teaching the Dene language. And um, and what how I'm going to do this particular interview is I'm going to have her illustrate her teaching methods with me. I grew up in a household, as you, as we have mentioned earlier, that my parents were Dene Susene speakers. They didn't speak English at home that frequently. And so my, my mom and dad would speak to me in Dene. I would respond in English. And so although I, I understand Dene, my pronunciation in Dene isn't as good. And so I'm going to get my guests to do a little lesson plan teaching me to pronounce certain words. So that's one episode coming down the road. Um, another one I have planned is I work with a, um, indigenous woman from, 
from Lima, Peru, working to, to, um, I guess it was to inspire indigenous women locally, indigenous South American women locally, and, um, to empower them, to give them the strength and building tools to, um, create self, self reliance. And so that's, so that one, because I don't speak Spanish, I'm going to have an interpreter. And that particular podcast will be me asking questions in English, her answering them in Spanish, and both are going to be interpreted. So that's, that's going to be something new. And mm. it might be a little challenging, but I think it will be interesting. Uh, I can remember meeting that guest uh, back in the 1990s uh, when you were working for the Assembly of First Nations, and there was a uh, there was a gathering of indigenous people, including from South America, and and they came up in winter time and had never seen snow before. They were they were amazed by that, right? <laughs> oh my God, they were so excited, and they didn't even have the proper clothing, so we had to get jackets and mitts and and <laughs> boots for them and um we had a conference workshop in Elmer Quebec at that mm. time yeah <laughs> and going back to language for a second um i know it's i think your experiences that you just described is is not that unusual where and i think it happens in immigrant families as well where you have one generation speaking a native language and the children, um, the children being sort of semi, uh, semi familiar with the language who you know, will speak English at home, but will understand the parents language. So, uh, what's, what's behind your personal desire to speak your Denisuthine native language? Well, that is a really good question. And really the language holds the culture, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so, as I'm speaking more with not only Dene people, it helps me understand the culture and be connected to the culture more. Mm-hmm. And so, that's why I'm excited to learn Dene. And I also really like when I'm looking at the Dene words, I like breaking it down to what often you can't translate it um, directly. And I think in a previous uh, podcast, somebody had mentioned when they were talking to um, native language uh, speakers that you can't really interpret the nuance of something because it's embedded in the culture and there's no words to describe it. And so that's my interest. Mm-hmm. Well, so so that's... That's a long way from talking about trauma and addictions, but I mean it's all part of the of the experience of indigenous peoples today. And um, as someone who works myself uh, as a an immigrant, um, uh, as a first generation immigrant to Canada, uh, who works full time for indigenous peoples, I've I've come to understand uh, the indigenous experience from a very specific perspective, which is the perspective of their rights as recognized in law and the breaches of those rights 
and the way that those breaches have caused damage. And that damage, of course, includes the loss of language, includes the loss of economic uh, opportunity, includes uh, includes the social damage of trauma and and addictions. Um, and to me, the root causes of, of all of the negative experiences uh, stem from that, stem from the fact that we have uh, a history of deprivation and marginalization of Indigenous peoples. And for me, um, I didn't mean to get into this little speech, but <laughs> the uh, for me as a lawyer uh, practicing uh, for First Nations and, and in the dominant uh, legal system. Um, it is uh, it is a cause of great concern for me that so much of the damage uh, that has been caused to First Nations has been the result of the governments in the past ignoring their responsibilities, ignoring the legal rights of Indigenous peoples. So I would just put out there a uh, request that maybe one of your one of your sessions might include that subject of how rights and the breaches of rights have contributed to uh, to indigenous people's struggles, and what may be happening to reverse that to the extent that they can be reversed in this generation. Yeah, thank you. That's that's an interesting statement. You're. Um... I do have, I was just talking to a historian yesterday who did some studies where I'm from, the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation in Fort McMurray. And um, I'm planning to interview him there. He's just, he's writing a book at the moment. And once he has completed the book, I will be interviewing him and talking about the historical factors in that region. So I'd like to uh, talk, you've talked a little bit about resilience, and, and I think uh, resilience to me is the quality that Indigenous peoples have, and I think it's a human, universal human quality, uh, thinking of you know, Ukraine today and other places where people in different parts of the world are under tremendous challenges and yet uh, maintain their um, their resilience in the face of those challenges. And I know you've talked about Viktor Frankl and the uh, his reaction to being in the Holocaust, in the in the death camps of the Holocaust, and how there's a sort of a miraculous quality that that people can draw upon uh, in in the worst of circumstances, but the other the other issue that I think comes up in your in your podcast is that, and it's the word it's it's the word of the moment, and that's reconciliation. And reconciliation can mean a lot of different things. I think <clears throat> as a lawyer, it is it is a very prominent word uh, in the in the jurisprudence. Of the <clears throat> of the indigenous uh, indigenous world, uh, but what does it mean to you as a podcaster, as an indigenous person yourself? Wow, that that's really loaded because <laughs> because it can mean so many things, so different to different people. And for me, as an indigenous person, reconciliation is acknowledging 
the wrongs that were historical wrongs. And the part of the dominant society had in that. So we're talking in context, we're talking about colonialism. You know, as a residential school survivor, reconciliation is means a lot to me because when I look at the, you know, the cultural genocide that was perpetrated on Indigenous people solely for economic benefit to get lands from Indigenous people worldwide. Mm-hmm. And to move forward, people say, you know, you can't concentrate on the past. You got to move on. Well, in order to move on, you have to acknowledge the past. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> non-Indigenous people you know, sure, it wasn't you personally, like Alan, you are a first generation uh, immigrant. So it's not something you did, but the ancestors, you know, the Scots, the English, the French that colonized First Nations is. I think it's a responsibility of all Canadians to learn about and and look at the rich history of Indigenous peoples. You know, find out, you know, like if you know an Indigenous person, and I know a lot of non-Indigenous people, but I really haven't had many non-Indigenous people say to me, what was it like in residential school? Mm-hmm. Were you, how were you impacted? And I did a podcast recently um, with a clinical psychologist. And I said, well, you know, I wasn't really that impacted by going to residential school. And she said, well, I'd like to challenge you on that because just being removed from your family is a trauma. Mm-hmm. So you were impacted. Um but I just reshaped the way I looked at my residential school experience. But the point I'm making is I know a, a number of non-Indigenous people, but I've never been asked the question by a non-Indigenous person, mm. how was your experience in residential school? And it's almost like they know I've been to residential school, and for some reason, they don't want to go there. Hmm. And I don't know why. Well, there's an interesting... I, 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 um, I often remind people that I'm an immigrant. Um, and and I, think in, I think subconsciously what I'm, what I'm doing and emphasizing that is saying that I was not involved personally and my ancestors were not involved in these, these past wrongs done to Indigenous people. But I think that's that's beside the point, uh, because as a non-Indigenous person, um, I have stepped into a role and become a citizen of a country that has this past that is the legacy of everybody today. Whether whether you're an immigrant, or whether or whether your your family came over in 1600, um, we have we have a society that was built in large part on the wrongful actions of depriving 
First Nations of their territories, their economies, um, their cultures. And so there's no way that you can escape a sense of responsibility. And I don't mean personal responsibility. I mean societal responsibility, that we as a society, um, whether we're made up of immigrants, recent arrivals, or uh, you know, people who have been here for hundreds of years, um, for making sure that our society today and in the future is just. And that justice means coming to terms with the past, coming to terms with the, and again, I'm, I'm putting on my lawyer hat here for a second, coming to terms with the fact that treaties were made where the indigenous people had a certain understanding of what was happening. Um, and universally, they will say, um, they were recognizing our rights, our sovereignty, agreeing to, sh- we agreed to share our territory in exchange for the benefits of this relationship and the technologies and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but in reality, when you read the treaty documents, it was all about taking away, really stealing the land uh, in exchange for minimal, uh, minimal benefits you know, a few dollars a year, the right to continue uh, the hunting, hunting, fishing, gathering economy. And in terms of economic development, it might say, okay, you can get to continue the number treaties, for example, you can get to continue sm- or evolve from hunting, gathering people into small scale farming, but stopping there and saying, okay, you're always going to be you're going to aspire to be peasants, <laughs> you know, to put it, to put it bluntly. You're going to aspire to be peasants, but we're going to take your land away and we're going to take all the benefits of that land for ourselves. And that's what, that's societally the history of our country, not just our country, but really most developed countries, but certainly in our country. And that's against the background of a legal regime where promises were made. Um, uh, the common law, the Royal Proclamation of 1763, really promised a different type of relationship. And now today, after all of this history and all of this um, uh, damage, reconciliation, what does that mean? It means it means going back, owning up to, first of all, owning up to the wrongs of the past, but it means in a, in a material sense, um, putting in place a relationship that is that is one of of equality at least and um and one where first nations can enjoy their economies their cultures their languages as as a part of a broader society that's that's what it means to me that's what reconciliation means to me and that's as an immigrant as a lawyer as a as a caucasian person <laughs> how does that ring to you yeah no you you've explained it quite much better than i could have. Uh, but <laughs> I think the, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, I mean, the colonizers, as we were being colonized, you you mentioned that act just now, um, the Indian Act. Oh, well, you didn't, you didn't, didn't mention, mention it, but, yeah, but the Indian Act yeah. falls, is part of that. And, and so, you know, Reconciliation is, for me, you know, when I listen to the Pope's 
apology on residential schools. I thought that apology for me was empty mm. because I have learned in the last while when you apologize to someone to really make it substantial, you need to identify how what happened impacted them and how it's impacted you. So the Pope never said, you know, residential schools has impacted Indigenous peoples negatively in these ways. Mm. And and so when you don't acknowledge what your action has done, the apology is empty mm. because it says you don't understand the action you have taken, how it had negatively impacted mm -hmm. that person. So that, you know, and so even for myself, when I'm looking at apologizing to family and friends, I always look at, okay, how is that particular, my particular action impacted negatively to that person mm -hmm. and me? So, I start off by saying, well, I'm sorry that I've done this, said this, written this, and those words have this impact on you. And then I apologize, mm -hmm. you know, and so that means something. Yeah. Because then you understand yeah. that I understand what my actions did, yeah. right? So it's it becomes, it's it's just more, it's a stronger statement. Well, it's very easy to utter the words, I'm sorry. Uh, but feeling that and feeling, feeling personally the, the consequences of your wrong, what you have wronged another person and, and really trying to atone for that. That's a, that's a, a much deeper question. And anyway, I'm glad you brought up the Pope. Um, uh, and I wasn't sure I was going to go there and, You've been married to me for 30 years, so you know I have some strong views on religion, um, <laughs> which I'm not going to get into right now. But I think one of the things, and and possibly equally important uh, to the story of Indigenous peoples in this country, equally important as the deprivation of land and economies, is the conversion of Indigenous peoples to Christianity. Um, and in introducing introducing into the worldview of indigenous peoples ideas like like sin, like hell and heaven, and salvation through certain means. And and to me, that way of thinking to which to me is a is a distortion um, and a departure, a departure from traditional spirituality of indigenous peoples. And I'm sure there's very, very many diverse forms of spirituality. I'm not saying there's one, one type of spirituality, but when you introduce notions like heaven, hell, salvation, sin, original sin, that the idea that we're all born as sinners and we have to fight to overcome that, that legacy is to me a great a great wrong. I was going to use the word evil, but that's maybe too strong. A great wrong. And and um, one of the things that I don't find people are talking about 
is um, is the effect of conversion to a particular religion, and uh, and and I don't I don't know I'm not sure where I want to go with this this point, but what, what would you say to that? Well, as a Catholic, as, a, as someone brought up very much by nuns. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, being Catholic was embedded in me. And I find for myself, it's hard to, to separate, you know, that from indigenous hold worldview, the natural world, the natural law, because in the background, it's like, it's like um, in on a computer, you have an operating system. In the background, you have certain things running. It's just there. You don't think about it, right? It's just in the background, and it's operating in the background. So for me, I find that in my background is all this Catholic stuff, mm-hmm. right? So oh, I, I, I've been very aware of that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> over the last 30 years. So I've got these Catholic stuff, and and I... And it's interesting, you know, one of the things you just mentioned a moment ago is, you know, the being born a sinner and, you know, good and bad and evil. I mean, that context was never an indigenous context. Mm -hmm. Like in indigenous worldview, we didn't have good and evil. It was just is like Mm -hmm. we, there was no, um, wrong right or wrong i mean there is right or wrong ways of doing things but but you weren't punished as a baby because there was a context of knowing that you were born a sinner because mm-hmm. of the religious aspect of of what people are following so uh anyway all that to say is I am who I am, and part of it is being Catholic because I've been indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about, you know, in the 60s, there was, you know, people were were being brainwashed, you know, the different religious people. I mean, I don't remember these, but I read about them. But, you know, so they were, it was, they were brainwashed, and it was hard to remove them from those communities, and they had to be de- brainwashed you know so and it takes a lot to it's almost like decommissioning right you have to bring it down to the to this to the um raw surface and rebuild a person again Mm -hmm. and i'm finding you know in indigenous communities the religion is there they talk about spirituality but they talk about god and they talk about sinning, good and evil and bad. It's still there and it would be really, I would like to see that we evolve away from that mm-hmm. and go back to, you know, when you look at a river, a stream, and, you know, it it kind of meanders and it'll take a different route depending on on the gravity and the pull of nature and you don't say this is this is um this is bad or evil it just is yes. right mm-hmm. you know nature is you know and a tree is is you know as it grows and it it it's sometimes crooked and it moves over a little bit and it's but you don't say oh that tree is 
is is evil or (laughs) how dare those branches go in that direction? That's not the proper way to grow, you know? So we have to just eliminate that from our thinking. Well, there's a very there's a very interesting podcast in there somewhere <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so um, it's probably uh, time to to end this mini this mini episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, let me just say, I wish you a very good fortune and continued success with the podcast, and that you uh, you gain the audience you deserve. And that more and more people come out and, and offer to come and speak to you for for public consumption. And uh, and you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how I how I end most of my con my conversations with my guests? I ask this question. What is the legacy you want to leave behind? Hmm. And so I will ask myself that question. I will answer that question. For myself, the legacy I'd like to leave is creating a conversation, you know, from an Indigenous worldview that everybody is interested in learning about. Mm. And it's not um, about a negative history. I mean, early on in my career, I I worked in land claims. And so I was really... I mean, one of the reasons, one of the interesting aspects about where we live today was that the um, the family that owned this property, the Brays, were descendants from Samuel Bray, who was a, a surveyor mm-hmm. of Indian reserves across Canada. And I thought, wow, how interesting. You know, we both work in land claims and we're sitting on this property. But what's more interesting is that the lands were Algonquins, you know, <laughs> like, yes. yeah, not so much. I mean, Samuel Bray actually stole the land from, <laughs> you know, he yeah. bought 100 acres on the river. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he he bought it, but initially this land is Alg- Algonquin land and you know, I I wanted, you know, when, I mean, another podcast that I'm going to be talking about is these land acknowledgements that people state, you know, they say, you know, like I'm going to say, you know, this is, I'm speaking from Algonquin unceded territory. Okay, what does that mean? I've acknowledged mm-hmm. that I'm on, but what does it do for the Algonquins, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, so... Um, that's for another podcast at another time. That's another one, yeah. Yeah, but my <laughs> my legacy is to have really interesting conversations that Canadians across Canada and internationally want to be part of. You know, mm-hmm. they want to just be a a fly in the wall while I'm having these conversations with a variety of different people. But more importantly, is to learn something. Yes. You know, I find that each podcast I do, I learn something new. And, um, and that's the exciting part of Mm -hmm. this journey is to be open to have these conversations 
and learning. Great. Thank you for that. Um, we'll just finish off by, uh, by saying that for me, again, as an immigrant, as a first-generation Canadian, it appalls me thinking back um, to my youth and childhood that I knew so little. And, and I can tell you that into my early 30s, I knew nothing, and I mean literally nothing, about First Nations in Canada. And I had been in Canada for 20 years. <laughs> and, and I can remember, I can remember very clearly uh, uh, being introduced to uh, my first Indigenous client, who happened to be the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and saying to my senior partner, well, What's a national chief? What's an assembly of First Nations? You know, and I knew so little. Uh, so that journey for me has been very, very important uh, and very meaningful. And I'm at a point where I think that we in Canada, among all the nations of the world, are perhaps in a unique place where we can not only acknowledge the wrongs done in the past, but engage in a process of reconcil meaningful reconciliation, redress, and acknowledge the resilience of Indigenous peoples for having survived all of the attacks on their spirituality, on their culture, on their economies, on their lands, and come out of it as proud, prosperous, healthy peoples. Mm -hmm. And that's that's sort of what I have been working for these past 30-odd years. Well, thank you. And I just want to acknowledge the person you're talking about is Harold Cardinal. Yeah. And Harold <laughs> Cardinal, I mean, is a name that Canadians should know. Yes. Like, he was an amazing, amazing uh, person. And... Um, he wrote the book. Yeah. Um, the Unjust Society yeah. uh, was the first one he wrote. And yeah, uh, yeah he was, um, you know, I feel, I feel so privileged personally that Harold, I was introduced to Harold through my senior partner and he didn't know me from Adam. I really didn't know him. I knew him as a, I remember seeing his name from the sixties, but very superficially in, in the, in media coverage of the red paper, the white paper, the red paper, all of that. But it was very much background noise uh, to, to sort of my life. But when I met Harold and he took me under his wing, um, saw something in me, um, which I'm grateful for, and, and, and began to teach me. He began to teach me, uh, you know, I was his lawyer and I would teach him law. But he would teach me deeper things about what treaties mean. And without that, without having that mentor, I never would have reached the place where I'm at now uh, and be in a position as a lawyer to, to achieve some of the things that are, that are being done where I'm involved in massive land claims and um, helping First Nations reclaim their, their, um, their birthright. And so I am, I'm enormously grateful for Harold and for his friendship and for his, his wacky sense of humor and yeah. all the other qualities yeah. that he had. <laughs> no, he was 
an amazing guy. He was a Cree, Cree man from Alberta, and he was always interested in law. Yes. Uh, and had a very strong mind. And uh, yeah, he, yeah, what a great guy. Well, he was, he was given his doctorate in law days before he passed away from cancer. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm so, so happy that, that that happened for him uh, because he was, he was a searcher as well and um, a very traditional person, but, but really believed in this notion of reconciliation and, and uh, in, in understanding the dominant society uh, and, and through the lens of, of the law mm. and, and what the law said should happen, <laughs> should have happened in the past and, and use that as a, um, as a way of, of determining how the future should unfold. And it was one of my great honors to co-author an article or a, or a, a paper for him for National Chief Phil Fontaine on the treaties. Mm. Um, and we co-authored it. We, it was a crazy time because I remember we had we had a deadline and and it, we I think we did the whole thing in about a month, uh, and it um, and I think it stood the test of time. So so with that um, and these personal reminiscences, um, so let's uh, let's bring this to an end. Thank you for your time, and uh, we very much your audience very much looks forward to your continued conversations and uh, enlighten, being enlightened uh, by yourself and your guests. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to interview this episode of the second season, start of the second season. And I'm really excited. I'm excited to continue this journey. And I hope you are just ex excited to listen to the new episodes as they come available Please subscribe, spread it with your with your friends and your network as often, because that's how we can grow. Very good. All right. Thank you so much, Alan Pratt. Okay. Over and out. <laughs>